Thanks, guys. So this uh, men's retreat thing that is in your bulletin, so uh, Ricky said it's going to be new and improved. It is actually, I just got the word on this, it's actually going to be the greatest men's retreat of all time. So the people from the Guinness Book are going to be there to record greatest men's retreat of all time. Um, and it will be different than any men's retreat you've ever been to. There will still be a lot of bacon, so we're not throwing out the important stuff. There will still be no females there. So there's a lot of uh, the normal stuff, but uh, it is going to be um, really, really a combination of a lot of fun, great relationships, and really growing in the Lord. So uh, if you are a guy or you know a guy that would benefit from a retreat like that, um, we do have limited space available. You really do need to get signed up. Uh, so you can see on there, there's a deposit amount. Uh, even if you don't have a deposit with you right now, but you know you want to go, fill it out so we can save your spot and then give us a deposit next week or something like that. That would be fine. But uh, do make sure that you take advantage of the opportunity for that men's retreat. It's coming up in March, and it's going to be February this week. So it's right around the corner. Um, I want to just take a second to to say, you know, every every Sunday there's somebody up here after the serve, after the uh, singing time, who's sharing announcements and walking us through the connect card and all that. And I always pray um, before we begin to look into the word together. And we don't do that just because it's a nice little segue or we need time to change people on the stage or something like that. Here's the deal. Um, when the truth of God goes out, the warfare gets, gets increased. The enemy doesn't just sit back while we dive into his word. And, and I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I bet some of you can attest to the fact that even at home when you open the Bible and go to read it, do you not sometimes have distractions? <laughs> you notice that the, the phone doesn't ring and the kids aren't crying and all that, and then you open the Bible and everything just kind of falls apart all of a sudden. Um, and the same thing can happen to us on Sunday mornings. Uh, don't, don't be embarrassed or ashamed. You know, when, you, when you're sitting out here and you nod off or something like that, that happens. And it happens to me when I'm sitting in those chairs and somebody else is preaching. The deal is that when God wants to get through to our heart and really change our lives, the enemy does everything he can to distract, confuse, and dismay. So, uh, when we're praying and asking God to prepare our hearts, I hope that you will make it a habit to ask God to prepare your heart before you ever walk in on Sunday mornings. And, and, then, and then really use that time of praying before the preaching begins to ask God to search your heart and to reveal what He might want to teach you during this time. So um, we're going to take just a, a second today and do something a little bit different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us about 30 seconds of just quiet, individual, silent prayer. And I just want to give you a, a moment with God where you, you ask Him to both protect you from distraction and open your heart. And, and also while you're praying, pray for me that the Lord will open my mouth to speak truth and not anything that would confuse. All right, let's just take a few seconds and pray silently.
Father, we ask you this morning to open our hearts and to open your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's a name some of you will remember, the name Wesley Allen Dodd. Uh, it goes back a ways, but uh, you may recall that the state of Washington was uh, in some dismay in the 80s where this guy was kidnapping children and torturing and killing children. And as a serial killer, he was finally caught and convicted beyond any reasonable doubt. And when it came time for sentencing, they did something very strange in the state of Washington. They, they gave him the death penalty. And at that time in the state of Washington, uh, I think Washington was the last state in the Union, if I'm not mistaken, that executed criminals by hanging. And so he was, he was convicted and sentenced to hang by the neck until dead. And of course, as you can imagine, that brought a lot of controversy in the community. There were people on that day in January of 93 when he was uh, being brought to the... Um, executioner's room, and there was a crowd on this side holding signs against the death penalty, and there was a crowd on this side rejoicing for justice to be done, and, and everybody was divided, and, and everybody was upset, and the national news media was focused, and there were 12 journalists who were brought into the room to view the execution. And at the end of the execution, the journalists came out to a platform and spoke to the whole crowd about what they had just witnessed. And, and a hush fell upon the crowd as one of the journalists read the last words of Wesley Allen Dodd, and these were his last words. I had thought that there was no hope and no peace. I was wrong. I have found hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a gasp. And the gasp was on both sides of the crowd because there was this, this sense of shock that came to think, wait a second, wait a second now, that's not how it works. You don't get to just live a demonic, devilish, hateful, murderous, torturous life. Take the lives of innocent children, the worst of the worst offenders. You don't get to just do that and then in the end, play the trump card of religion and somehow everything is forgiven and everything is fine and you get to just waltz into heaven. That's just not how it works. And everybody sort of is upset when they hear him say, I have found hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm right there with him. It makes me very uncomfortable for him to talk about salvation with his last words. The part of me that loves justice was satisfied with his execution I mean, the crimes this man committed are horrific. I want children to be safe from people like that. And the law prescribed the punishment for his crime, and, and I had no problem with that. But the part of me that loves grace was frankly, frankly really confused with the whole thing. How could he live such a sinful life and then in the very end call upon the name of Jesus at the 11th hour? It just doesn't seem right. And I had the exact same feeling when I read that the infamous mass murderer Jeffrey Dahmer had accepted Christ in prison before he was murdered by his fellow inmates. And again, I thought, wait a second, how does God possibly accept somebody like this? This guy is maybe 
one of the most horrific individuals that has ever walked the face of the earth. He captured people, raped them, tortured them, murdered them, dismembered them, and ate them. Does it get worse than this? Is there, is there anybody more deserving of hell than a guy like Dahmer? How could God possibly accept him? And there's a part of me that it cringes at the possibility of getting to heaven one day and seeing him. Where's the justice? I mean, we read that God is a just God, right? Isn't God just? Where's the justice in this? Is God just? Take your Bibles and go to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. So we look at this book of the law of Moses. And in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, it describes God using a metaphor. It says he's a rock. Deuteronomy 32 4, the rock his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He's described as a rock, unchanging. All his ways are just. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. Uprightness is found in him, the one who is our rock this God of justice. In the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What does God require of us? He requires of us that like Him we will be just, that we will do Justice, carry out justice. At the same time, loving mercy and walking in humility. So the waters are getting a little bit murky. In Isaiah 61 verse 8, God says, I, the Lord, love justice. In fact, Isaiah has a lot to say about this. Turn to Isaiah chapter 30. This is also in your Old Testament toward the back. After you get to Psalms and Proverbs and all of that, you'll come to Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 30, and let's look together at a couple of verses. We're going to begin in verse 18 of Isaiah 30. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. So once again, murky waters. A God who will surely be gracious when someone cries out to him, who will surely answer our, our plea when we beg him for forgiveness. He always hears, he always answers, and he loves grace and compassion, for he is a God of justice. I mean, it's presented here as though, as though 
being just requires him to be gracious. Like, those things go together, and we think of them as being completely separate. One of the most important things we can do is to get our basic theology straight, and by that, what I, what I mean by that is that we have to know some things about who God is. And, and oftentimes, the lies that we believe, we believe because we're confused about who God is and who God isn't. And, and we need to get this straight right from the get-go about what does it mean that God is justice and gracious. We, we've been looking at it another way. We've been saying Jesus is full of grace and truth. Truth, justice, grace, mercy, loving kindness, uprightness, righteousness, pardon. All of these things together in this God with whom we have to do. I want you to see it in the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm chapter 33. Psalm chapter 33, verse 5, describes God this way. He loves righteousness and justice. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness or mercy of the Lord. It's almost like the, the, the writers of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's hard for them to talk about His justice without mentioning His mercy. It's hard for them to remember His compassion without mentioning His holiness, His uprightness, His justice. So somehow we have this God who is unlike anyone else that we know. He's completely just and completely merciful. It's amazing how justice and mercy are combined in the Lord. He is totally just and He will not allow wickedness to go unpunished. But He's also totally gracious and He will call upon, He will um, heal and forgive all those who call upon His name. Every other religious system is different than this. In every other religious system, if there's any mercy to be shown by the deity, then, then for the moment while mercy is being shown, justice is set aside. In the Quran, we, we read about Allah, the God of the Muslims. And, and in the Islamic faith, they, they believe that God is, is absolutely just, absolutely righteous, absolutely holy, absolutely perfect, and that cannot change. And because of that, mercy is not one of the attributes that they expect from Allah. At the same time, there are passages in the Quran where Allah gives mercy. And to do so, he sets aside justice. He says, I will, I will pass on justice this time in order to give mercy. Is that what our God does? No. Justice is never compromised for mercy. Truth never compromised for grace. In fact, isn't that what the cross is all about? Isn't the cross the ultimate picture of justice and mercy in one spot? Justice as the wrath of God is poured out upon the Son of God because all wickedness must be punished. So the only one who is unguilty, the only one who is pure, the only one who does not deserve destruction is the one who undergoes it willingly on our behalf. Justice is being poured out. In the song that we sang today, we said, heaven turned aside while this wrath is being poured out upon the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, on our behalf. Justice and mercy, it was poured out on Him and not poured out on those of us who deserve it. 
Every time you see a cross, you should be reminded of God's incredible justice and mercy. And if, if the price that is paid on the cross is enough to buy your mercy and mine, then it's also enough to buy the pardon of people like Dodd and Dahmer. And I think if I get to heaven and see those guys, I'm not going to be happy. I cringe at the thought. And it occurs to me that perhaps they might cringe at the thought of having to share heaven with me as well. Because every one of us deserves justice. Grace is grace because it is given to those who deserve justice. And that brings us back to where we were last week. Pontius Pilate standing there with Jesus asking this question. What is truth? All of this righteousness you speak of, all this justice, all this truth, how, what are we to make of this? What is truth? Where does it come from? How can we know the truth when we live in a world of lies? And is truth really important enough to make a big deal out of anyway? I mean, really, is it worth telling the truth if the truth offends people? Because we live in a culture, I don't have to tell you this, but we live in a culture where the ultimate sin is to offend someone else. Everything is done to avoid hurting the feelings of somebody. And so we have to choose our words carefully. We have to be completely politically correct in everything that we say and do because God forbid that somebody might have their feelings hurt because we said something or believed something or did something in pursuing our own belief system. And, and so we have this idea now in our culture that says not offending people is the highest good. But I ask you, if the truth saves someone's life, should we not tell it to them, even though it may ruffle their feathers? Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's see what the Bible has to say in answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? And we're going to do that today in the Gospel of John. So take your Bibles to the New Testament and turn to John chapter 17, fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in John chapter 17. This is the place where you can put your bookmark. We're going to be flipping around, but you're going to, we're going to keep coming back here. John 17, and we're going to begin in verse 17. And while you're turning there, let me just kind of set the stage for you. The, really, the second half almost of the book of John is all devoted to the last few days of Jesus' life. John gives us great detail where many of the other gospel writers just give us a glimpse of this and a glimpse of that. And John goes into great depth in terms of the things that Jesus had to say, the things that he taught his disciples in those last days, his famous last words, if you will. And among his famous last words is a long prayer that is recorded for us in chapter 17. It's known as the high priestly prayer because Jesus is acting as a priest in this prayer. He is praying for us, trying to connect us with the Father. And in the high priestly prayer, as Jesus prays for his followers, he's praying for his disciples, the twelve, the, the few that follow him closely, and he says, and I am praying for those who will believe through their testimony. So he's praying for us as well. All of his followers, for all of time, he's praying for us. What did he pray for us? Let's pick it up in verse 13, John chapter 17. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them 
because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, and they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. There it is, right there in verse 17. God's word is truth. So now we're getting somewhere in answering this age-old question that Pilate asks that keeps getting repeated in our generation today. Can we really know truth? How do we really find truth? Is there any way to agree upon the truth? I mean, how do we know for sure when something is true? God, the creator of the universe, spoke these words. He said, your word is truth. God's word is truth. And so in John 17, we're right at the end of this time of his ministry. And everything is ever told these guys is not only the truth in the sense that it is not false and it represents actual facts, but in the larger sense, because he is the truth. So when Jesus presents himself, himself, he presents the truth. He didn't just point the way, he is the way. He didn't just offer life, he is the life. He didn't just tell the truth, he is the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. His word is truth. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. Now, leave a finger in John and flip over to the book of Hebrews toward the back of your Bible and go to Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews is writing his letter specifically for people who are steeped in the Jewish tradition for them to understand who Jesus is. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, this is how he begins. Hebrews 1.1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God, who as far as the Jewish people have ever known, speaks through prophets. This is what he does. If God has something to say to his people, he raises up a prophet, puts his word in the mouth of the prophet. The prophet stands before the people, says, thus saith the Lord, and gives them the Lord's message. They're used to that. Here's the problem. It's been 400 years and they haven't had a prophet, not a word from God, until John the Baptist shows up on the scene. A 400-year silent time. They're used to hearing from God from the prophets, but now no one they knew and no one who was born of someone they knew, 10 generations back, they don't know anybody who's ever heard from a prophet until John the Baptist shows up. The people are starving to hear from God. How do we know the truth? Are we supposed to guess? Are we supposed to figure out what God wants? How do we, how do we figure all of this out? He says he always spoke through the prophets, didn't he? But today, now in these last days, and the last days begin with the time of Jesus' coming, and we continue in the last days today until the time of his second coming. Whenever you see the last days mentioned in Scripture, that's what it's talking about. In these last days, he still speaks but he speaks in the person of his son. Remember John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, Jesus, the Word of God, the the speech of God, the revelation of God, 
the Greek word logos, the, from which we get our English word logic or, or the English word reason. The, the reason, the logic, the understanding of God, the revelation of God is all found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word, the one who is full of grace and full of truth. God and His Word cannot be separated. God and truth cannot be separated. Truth is His nature. When the Father sent His Son into the world, He sent truth. And Jesus, the Word and the truth, entrusted Himself to His followers. First, His personal inner circle of followers, and even through this prayer we see to the rest of us who now follow Him over the years in these last days. Filling us with His Spirit and giving us His written Word. And Jesus knew that speaking this truth and living according to His truth would always alienate us from our culture. He knew it. He had seen it throughout the ages. He knew it in His own time. He saw how His culture rejected Him and turned against Him because He spoke the truth to them. He understood that this is part and parcel of bringing light into darkness. When someone has lived in darkness for a very, very long time, if you shine a light in their eyes, they will try to knock the light out. It's painful. It's difficult to deal with. And so he prayed for us, those who are marked by the truth. And what did he pray for? He prayed that we would be protected from the evil one, verse 15. Don't miss that because Sometimes in this discussion of truth, we forget the whole spiritual warfare side of this. Don't miss. He prayed that we would be protected from the evil one. And the evil one is the father of lies. So Jesus, who is the truth, is praying that we would be protected from the one who is the father of lies. And look how he asks for that to happen. Go back to verse 17. We're in John 17 again. Go to verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them, he prayed. Now, now, that's one of those, you know, $10 theological words, and we're not always quite sure what it means. Let me just define it for you. To sanctify is to cleanse, to purify, to make holy, to, to set aside or separate for use for God's glory. And he asked that we will be sanctified. That, that the Father will do a sanctifying work in us to make us pure, to make us holy, to make us clean, to set us aside for His greater purposes. And how will He do that? What will be, what will be the tool that He uses to make us pure? His Word. Sanctify them in your Word. Your Word is truth. God uses His truth to do all that. So truth is a really big deal. Apart from God's truth, his people would not be noticeably different than anybody else. The truth is the tool that he uses to make us right, to set us apart. Apart from God's truth, there would be no salvation, no transformation, no eternal life. The truth really matters. It's a really big deal. And some of us, nonetheless, are afraid of the truth. We don't want to be confronted with the truth. Because we're afraid that, that if the truth really gets into our hearts, that that will demand accountability in us, it will demand change in us, and we don't like change, we're comfortable the way things are, and we want to continue feeding our flesh, and if the truth says we can't do that, 
We don't want to hear the truth. And so people will run from the truth. But here's the thing about truth. Yes, it can make us uncomfortable. And yes, it is going to require some change in our lives. It can bring things into light that we would frankly rather keep in darkness. That's true. But here's the rest of the truth. It also sets us free. The truth sets us free. And as God's children, we are commanded, therefore, to walk in the truth. 3 John 1.3. We're commanded to love the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.10. We're commanded to believe the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.12. And, and we already talked about this. To believe the truth is to put all of our weight in it. Nobody believes anything until their life acts like they believe it. You can intellectually agree with something but still not believe it. And I'm afraid that there are too many Christians who could get all the questions right on, an, on a, a test for right doctrine and dogma, and yet we don't believe the truth that we have memorized in Sunday school because our lives don't reflect it. And he commands us to love it, to trust it, to walk in it, to believe it. It's impossible to walk with Jesus without fully embracing the truth because He is the truth. So if we get it wrong about Jesus, it doesn't matter what else we get right. If we get it wrong about Jesus, it's game over. Nothing else matters by comparison. So there's a life and death battle being waged between Jesus, who is the truth, and Satan, who is the father of lies. And, and I wish I could get Christians everywhere to grasp this rather simple, I think, biblical principle about spiritual warfare. We're so fascinated with spiritual warfare and movies about it and demons and ghosts and angels and all of this kind of stuff, fascinated by the stuff we make up about it because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details, but the stuff the Bible does give us, we don't pay attention to. What does he tell us about spiritual warfare? He tells us that it comes down to a battle of truth. Take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's just a few books to the right of John. After Acts, you come to Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. The, the topic is spiritual warfare. And here's what Paul writes. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You want to understand spiritual warfare? Here's where the battle is fought between your ears. It's about your thoughts and what you choose to believe. The enemy, the father of lies, is constantly firing flaming arrows at us, and they are lies. And we are so used to living in a culture that has rejected God's truth and has instead made up its own truth. I, I was taking a course this week, and, and as a part of the study, I had to study Nietzsche. Boy, was that fun. You know, if you, if you remember, if you've been to college, you probably had to read Nietzsche at some point. It's fascinating. So Nietzsche basically is this philosopher 
who believes that the self is the most highly exalted thing and that we're all in it for ourselves and therefore the world is a dark and hopeless place. And he goes on and on and writes pages and pages and volumes and volumes of the same ridiculous dribble that since we cannot know anything for sure, we just should trust in ourselves. And where did his own philosophical system get him? Suicide. And yet Nietzsche, along with Freud, Darwin, and perhaps a couple of others, are on the Mount Rushmore of humanism. This belief that we as people are the highest and grandest and most important of everything, that I as an individual am more important than everything else. And where does it lead? It leads to despair and brokenness. But here's the problem. We have been raised in a culture that for a hundred years has believed these ideas and has has gradually moved further and further and further and further from biblical truth into these humanistic secular ideas that basically will not hold water, have no hope, and lead to nothing but destruction. But we have been spoon-fed this since we were children. And so a whole bunch of us don't even recognize, we're not even surprised, we don't even question the lyrics of the songs that we listen to. The ideas that come across in the television shows that we watch or the books that we read or the articles that we read or the comments that people make online. We don't even have a filter by which to filter those things for truth because we've just been swimming in lies for so long, we're used to it. And as the body of Christ, the Bible says we are light in a world of darkness. And if lies represent the darkness, then don't you think the truth ought to, the church ought to represent the truth? Isn't it time that we start clinging to the truth in such a way that we could actually win these spiritual battles? Look what it says. Go back to verse 5 of, of 2 Corinthians 10. We are destroying speculations. What are speculations? Philosophical ideas. Destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How are we going to destroy those fortresses? How are we going to tear down those strongholds? We're going to do it by believing what's true and rejecting what is false and sharing what is true so that we can chase away what is false. When we refuse to believe the truth, we're not doing ourselves any favors. And when we refuse to share the truth, we're not doing our loved ones any favors. God is the source of all truth. You and I cannot create truth for ourselves. All we can hope to do is discover truth in the person of Jesus Christ and in His written word. But we live in a world that doesn't believe that. And we listen to theologians and philosophers like Oprah Winfrey. And, and, and in her new Oprah network, she did a whole mini-series on belief. And, and she's probably... One of the loudest voices speaking to our culture today purporting to know truth about spiritual things. And what is her famous quote? There are actually many diverse paths leading to God. That's her idea. She didn't think it up herself, did she? There's a war going on. People love to hear it. No standards. 
no God who insists on obedience. Everyone can just find his own way, and it will all come out just fine in the end. God is gracious. God is love. And I don't have to worry about any, any standards or any truth that he gives. This is wonderful news. And so many people are drawn to it. But the God of truth says something a little different than what Oprah Winfrey says. The God of truth says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you can't have it both ways. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's the most horrific liar in the history of the world. Truth matters, or at least it should. Integrity matters. It matters. It should matter. But truth and integrity are really losing traction in our culture. Again, a recent study, 64% of Americans said, I will lie when it suits me if it doesn't cause any real damage. 64%. 53% of married Americans said they would probably cheat on their spouse given the opportunity because after all, their spouse would probably cheat on them too. 53%. Only 31% of Americans agree with the following statement. Honesty is the best policy. Two-thirds of Americans don't think honesty is the best policy. When asked what they would be willing to do for $10 million, 25% said they would abandon their family for $10 million. 23% said they would become prostitutes for a week. And 7% said they would murder a stranger for $10 million. We live among these people. So truth and integrity don't seem to be winning in the American culture. Never before have the words of Judges chapter 21 verse 25 rang so true. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king, no standard, no accountability, no provider to whom we look. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And you know what? Who can blame them? It's actually logical. I mean, these kinds of statements are appalling to me, but they're actually logical. If you don't begin with a God to whom you're accountable, or if the God with whom you begin is not loving, or he's not good, or he's not powerful, if you get the God question wrong, it sets you on a path where you will find your own way, redefine your own truth, and look for your own life. It's just logical. So we got a bunch of people doing the best they can, swimming in a sea of lies, trying to find their way, their truth, and their life. And who's the truth? Jesus. The truth will set us free. Apart from him the truth and the truth of his word, people are in bondage. So it's not loving to withhold truth from people who need to hear it. It's selfish. Truth matters. But again, the problem is that people in our culture by and large, do not understand that truth matters or, or even know where to find truth if they did. Again, a recent Barna survey, this one's very recent, showed that 74% of millennials, people ages 15 to 33, 74% agree that whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. 
whatever is best, whatever is right for your life, whatever is best for you, is the only truth you can know. Do you hear Nietzsche in that? And most older people disagree with that, but still, when you mix all the adults in our country together, 57% of American adults, regardless of age, believe that knowing right and wrong is a matter of personal experience. So even though truth is essential to life, and especially to eternal life, Americans are abandoning truth at an unprecedented rate. This is serious stuff. And who is it that has been entrusted with the truth that the people around us so desperately need? Christ's followers. We're the ones for whom he prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. But as we've seen in the past few weeks, they're not listening to us. They're not listening because they don't respect us. They're not listening because they think we don't respect them. They, they see us as hypocrites, people who say that they believe in truth, but their lives scream a different story. We lack grace in the way that we deal with them, or so they say. And so unable to find grace and truth among God's people, what is a lost world to do except look for counterfeits? Something that will fill me up and make me feel better, at least temporarily. Instead of real grace, we have a whole culture that has accepted tolerance as a substitute for grace. Tolerance. It's the, it's the highest value in our culture today. The worst thing you could do is not tolerate someone's ideas. Tolerance refuses to ruffle feathers. It accepts the, the idea that nobody is really wrong and no idea is really incorrect, except, of course, the idea that somebody could be wrong and that their ideas could be incorrect. It makes no sense. That kind of an idea cannot be tolerated in a society that values tolerance above grace. So the one thing they won't tolerate is anybody who doesn't tolerate their ideas. And here we are. Here we are. People of God. The, the, the ones for whom Jesus prayed that we'd be sanctified in truth. The ones who are called to be the light of the world. We stand as the last defense for real truth in a world that has chosen falsehood. And I know that sounds like hyperbole. I know you go, well, you're being a little dramatic. The last defense? Guys, if God is the truth, if Jesus is the truth, if we're sanctified in his word and his word is truth, and we don't stand in the truth, then where will the truth be found? We're it. God has entrusted us to be the bearers of truth without for a moment compromising grace. It's a high calling. What would it look like, though? What would it look like if we would stand for grace and truth like Jesus does? How would the world respond if we told people the truth while laying down our lives in service to them just like Jesus did? All I know is that the last time the world encountered someone who was full of grace and truth, they nailed him to a cross. Oh, and by the way, the church was born. And salvation has come to billions because of it. Today, we carry this banner of grace and truth 
We do. But how are we going to carry a banner when we're holding on to a gavel and insisting on the right to pronounce judgment and, and placing ourselves above others and looking down upon those who are simply doing what is logical to them, having been swimming in a world of lies all of this time, looking for truth and life somewhere and defining it their own way. How do we stand with a gavel in our hand to condemn them for their lostness? We can hold a banner if we'll just drop the gravel. We can hold a banner of grace and truth that will stand out, that will stick out above a crowd where people will notice it and be drawn to it and know where to find it. We can do that. We should do that. Let's do that. Let's put down the gavel and join the army of God's people marching forward under the banner of grace and truth. I know you don't like the analogy of an army. It came from the Bible. Over and over again, we're compared to an army marching forward in truth. Many of the great hymns of the church, onward Christian soldiers marching off to war. Man, that's not sung very often today. Well, we, don't, we don't like war. We don't like soldiers. We don't like guns and battles and truth. We're just we're trying not to ruffle any feathers. Guys, there is a war we're supposed to be fighting. And the war is raging whether we fight in it or not. And the world is sitting back getting pummeled in this war. And what will we do about it? Let's put down the gavel and join Jesus by speaking the truth in love. When we do, we will see revival come to our land. Some of us have been Christians for a long time have been praying for revival, some of us, for decades. Lord, send revival. We see what's happened to our culture. We, we see what's happening to our communities, to our families. We say, God, please send revival. Let me tell you what the Bible says about revival, and history bears this out. It must begin in the household of God. Revival is not something God does out there. Revival is something He does in my heart. And when I begin to bow to the truth, when I begin to cling to the one who is grace and truth, when I begin to, to know him and submit to him and let him be Lord of my life, then what happens is I get transformed from the inside out and the banner of grace and truth goes up and people can see it and we begin to spill over onto one another. And if, if just one or two or three of us in this room today would actually full on lay ourselves in the altar and go, oh Jesus, it's just about you. From now on, it's all about you. I'm no more hiding, no more pretending, no more running. It's all about you. I'm going to be a living sacrifice. If just a few of us did that, God would so transform our lives that the people around us would not be able to resist the presence of the Holy Spirit and they would be caught up in it. And eventually, when the church began to look like the bride of Christ, and to carry the banner of grace and truth, the world would run to the church. And we would see people getting transformed as they meet Jesus, the one who is life, the one who is the way, the one who is the truth. It begins when we humble ourselves and cling to the one who is the truth. God is starting a movement. 
we didn't even notice it. Historians today, sociologists today, philosophers today, they can tell you about it. I mentioned Nietzsche. You know, 100 or so years ago, these humanists are popping up all over on the scene and they're writing and they're influencing and basically people are scoffing, shrugging their shoulders and going, this is ridiculous, this doesn't match with the Bible. But gradually the message gets out and gradually a movement begins, mostly on, on campuses and in, in you know, um, smoke-filled rooms with old guys and pipes talking about philosophy. And it just starts slowly like that. And pretty soon we see actual transformation taking place in a culture. Pretty soon our political parties change in order to reflect better what we think the culture wants in order to get us elected. Pretty soon our educational system changes and we start feeding our children this from as small as preschool all the way up through their PhD. They just get fed on this false humanistic baloney. And after a while, guess what happened? There's a hundred year movement going on in Western culture. And, and, and if you look at Western Europe, it's hard to find a vibrant, alive church anywhere on the continent. And if you look at the United States, we're catching up to Europe really fast. What if a movement began here? What if God did a transforming work in you today? And you just became a disciple of the one who is the truth. And if that began to happen to many of us, the movement would be overwhelming. God's starting a movement. Let it begin here. Let it begin with me. Let it begin with the truth. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, because...